It has been our habit or our custom for the last few years of Old Fashioned Sunday to bring a message from a preacher from the past. Uh, once we get into the message, it is entirely the words of that person. I mean, a couple of things have to be changed. Sometimes the illustrations are completely meaningless to us today, and so I have to take those out. Uh, sometimes they're just way too long. Preachers of the past sometimes preached a long time. I've been accused of preaching a long time, but my goodness, some of them a really long time, and so we have to cut them down. We have heard from people like uh, Charles Spurgeon. I think we've heard from him twice. We heard from D.L. Moody. We've heard from Jonathan Edwards, which was clear back in the 1700s. Uh, we've heard from R.G. Lee. Uh, I think I'm forgetting somebody, but I can't remember who it is. Uh, but in any case today, I want to bring a sermon from someone who's not that old. Uh, he just recently went home to be with the Lord, but that's Billy Graham. Um, for most of us, he would be considered an older preacher from the past. And the thing that's interesting to me as I've gone through this little exercise and down through the years reading these sermons and preparing these things, it's astonishing how the gospel never changes. Uh, what they preached then is what we preach today. And it's not going to change ever. And so Billy Graham is who we want to talk about today. I, I read a, a article just this week in Christianity Today as I was preparing for this, and I want to just read a few excerpts from it because this gives some biographical information about who Billy Graham was and a little bit about him. And so this was uh, just this week in Christianity Today. Billy Graham, he preached to 215 million people in 185 countries in crusades, rallies, and live satellite feeds. Of those, some 77 million saw him face-to-face in 53 countries. More than 3 million souls responded to his invitation to profess faith in Christ. He broke numerous attendance records, sometimes speaking to more than 100,000 people in a single service. Indeed, twice he spoke to more than one million in one event. Billy Graham was not a great preacher, if by great we mean eloquent. He knew it, and almost everyone else did too, including his wife. Still, he was a great preacher, if by great we mean effective. Sometimes his sermons flopped. But far more often, they did exactly what he hoped they would do. Persuade men and women to stand up, to walk to the front and profess new or renewed faith in Christ. Or pull to the side of the road as the radio carried the hour of decision and bow their heads to pray the serious words. Graham gradually mastered the art of streamlining his sermons. The timeless authority of Scripture reinforced the words that exploded at the beginning of countless sentences. The Bible says... The Bible says over and over. He usually preached from the King James Version because he knew it contained the words people knew best. His prodigious memory of Scripture kicked into gear in the first few minutes as he fired passages rapidly and repeatedly up to 100 times in a single sermon. He rarely, if ever, tried to defend the truth or relevance of the Bible. Instead, he just proclaimed it. And what audiences heard was a message of hope. A litany of re-words, reform, rebirth, renewal, regeneration served as the pivot. Nothing had to stay the same. Everything could be changed. Others found new life, and so can you. Graham's listeners also heard what might be called marching orders. Theologian Will Willimon rightly observes that whether Graham's audience was young or old, he gave listeners a young person's theology, a moment of closure that fit the other crucial moments of closure young people were expected to make as they reached maturity. Choose a mate. Choose a job. 
choose a path for your life, and choose Jesus Christ. The main point rang out as clearly as any bell atop any steeple. Come as you are. You don't have to straighten out your lives first, he told audience after audience. You don't have to make yourself well before going to a doctor. The altar was a hospital for sinners, not a resort for saints. How many of you in this room have heard Billy Graham in person, have been to a Billy Graham? Uh, look at that. I know Randy and I went together. I think you probably at the same one. We went and saw him. The sermon that, that I'm going to share with you today was preached at Herringay Arena in London on March 27, 1954. As one of his very earliest sermons, this one probably would fall into the category of his less polished ones. But nonetheless, it's very typical of his preaching. And so from this point on, uh, these, this is the words of Billy Graham. As on other occasions, I'm, I'm going to ask that there be no moving around. No whispering, no talking, because one moving, one person moving can disturb hundreds of people. I'm going to ask that in reverence and in quietness we listen for the next 30 minutes to a message I pray and trust is from God. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that the Spirit of the living God will fall upon this assembly of people. And we pray that we may feel the power and the impact of his mighty presence. And we pray that there may be conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And many will be brought to the Savior this day. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Now I want you to turn today to the book of Galatians, the sixth chapter and the seventh verse. Galatians chapter six. Verse number 7, it's a very familiar passage of Scripture in the Bible. Galatians is in the New Testament. You won't have any trouble finding it. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 7. The Bible says, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I want to read it one more time. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is a fundamental and basic law of God that runs from Genesis to Revelation. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Bible says if you sow the wind, you'll reap a whirlwind. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In other words, if you live a life disregarding God, neglecting the church, neglecting spiritual things, going on, breaking the commandments and the laws of God. The Bible says that someday you're going to reap it. Well, down here you may be getting along all right. In fact, the Bible indicates that sometimes those who live the wickedest and most sinful lives can many times prosper the most. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 73, I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. I was jealous. Here I am, a Christian, living a Christian life, and I'm not getting along very well. From a financial point of view, from a physical point of view, from a social point of view, I'm not getting along very well. And yet here's a man who lives a wicked, godless, sinful life. And he's prospering. He's getting along fine. It seems he never has any troubles. He never has any difficulties. He gets along wonderfully in the world. It seems God never judges him. Nothing ever happens to him. I suffer, and he doesn't. I am a Christian, and he is not. Is there any justice with God? What about it? 
But ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. The Bible says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Put it down in your little book right now that that is a basic law of God and that no man, no woman will ever commit a sin. No man will ever break one of God's commandments. No man will ever disregard the teachings of Christ and get away with it. The Bible says that that man is someday going to reap it. Every lie you've ever told is someday going to come back and slap you in the face. Every time you have ever cheated, every immoral thought that you have ever had is someday going to meet you face to face, and you're going to say, my God, I would give anything if time could turn backwards in its flight and I could have my choice in my life to live over again. The Bible says, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And your sins of omission, sins of commission, you're going to be held accountable for at the judgment of Almighty God, as sure as I stand here. Now, the Bible teaches that in many cases you suffer even now for your sins partially. Many people suffer in this life a certain hell for their sins. But that is nothing compared to the sentence that will be yours at the judgment of God. When God says, depart from me, ye cursed, I never knew you. And you Christians, you have a certain heaven down here, no matter what your troubles or sorrows bereavements, difficulties as Christians. The Bible says my grace is sufficient. You remember Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Some people think that he had very poor eyesight. I, I don't know what it was. But Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And Paul prayed to the Lord, oh God, remove this thorn. And God said no. Now God answered his prayer. God answers prayers. There's never a prayer prayed in Jesus' name but what God answers. He always answers, but sometimes his answer is no. And God knows what is best for us. And sometimes he says it's best for my children not to have this particular thing. And so Paul prayed and said, Lord, take this thorn from me, please. He prayed three times, and God said no, because my grace is sufficient. And I want the glory of God to be shown through your experience, Paul. And then Paul said, God's will is best. These things have happened unto me for the furtherance of the gospel. Oh, listen, it's wonderful to be a Christian. To know that God leads and directs in all the affairs of our lives. And no matter what comes, just to relax and rest. The Bible says to fret not, trust in the Lord, relax in the Lord, and he shall bring it to pass. What a wonderful thing it is to have the presence of Christ with you continually. If I knew that there was no heaven and there was no hell, I would still be a Christian just for the joy, just for the thrill of Christ down here because we Christians get plenty of heaven down here. But do you know what the Bible says? That the heaven we have here is not to be compared to the heaven that is ours yonder in the next life. It's going to be a wonderful thing. It's going to be a great thing. So you don't know what you're missing if you're not a Christian. So so many people have an idea that when you become a Christian, you can't have a good time anymore, and you have to go around with a long face. Don't you believe it? It's thrilling to be a Christian. It's wonderful. But I want to tell you another thing. The Bible says to you that are not Christians, be sure your sin will find you out. And whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. In the Old Testament, there's an illustration of that. There was a man whose name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. 
Babylon was the greatest empire in the world at the time. Babylon was also a city. And it had a wall completely around the city. The wall was, was so wide that four chariots could ride around the top of that wall abreast. It had 100 bronze gates, and at every gate it had a tower and some guards standing duty day and night. Inside that city was Belshazzar, the king, living in a luxurious palace. For two years, Babylon had been besieged by the Medes and the Persians. But Babylon had its own farms and its own lands inside of the city walls. The Euphrates River ran underneath the walls of the city, providing them water. They had plenty of water and plenty of food. They didn't care how long the armies were parked outside. Belshazzar was a young man. He was very cocky and he was very proud. And he enjoyed life. He loved his wild parties. He loved his drunken life. He loved his immorality. He loved all of those things. I imagine that Daniel, who lived in Babylon also, warned that young king many times. Watch out, Belshazzar, you're heading for a fall. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And I can imagine that Belshazzar just laughed. I'm young. Plenty of time to get religion later on. I'm young. I'm strong. I'm king of a great empire. I'm commander of a great army. I have all the gold and the silver and the copper of the treasury. I'm getting along just fine. Don't bother me with religion. That's for women and sissies, not he-men kings like me. Watch out, Belshazzar. You are heading for a fall. God says, be sure your sin will find you out. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, Belshazzar. Watch out. But Belshazzar kept on. And one morning, his prime minister came to him and said, Sir, I have good news. That The Medo-Persian army, that they've melted away in the night. They've retreated for the first time in two years. Belshazzar said, I knew it. I knew they were scared of me. I knew they would leave. I'll tell you what we're going to do, Mr. Prime Minister. We're going to have a party. Let's have a party. Let's let's have a banquet. Let's make it the greatest and the biggest banquet in the history of Babylon. Let's hold it in the hanging gardens of of Nebuchadnezzar, my grandfather. Let's get the finest dancers and the rarest wine and the finest food. And let's have a banquet that all Babylon will never forget. And so the plans were made, and the day came for the banquet. It was declared a holiday. The flags were unfurled. The orchestra was playing. The bands played in the streets. The soldiers marched. What a parade. Jeweled chariots came from every part of the empire, bringing lords and ladies and, and generals from the army. All the dignitaries from all the land of Babylon, all through the empire, they came to Belshazzar the king's great feast. Toward evening... The crescent moon was hanging in the sky. The soft breeze was creeping across Babylon. Chandeliers sending forth their soft glow in the banqueting hall. The guests are all assembled and they're eating and they're drinking and they're making merry. Immorality is being committed all around and Belshazzar the king is the gayest of the lot. Almost everybody of any importance in all of Babylon was there except one. And his name is Daniel. Daniel was the prophet of God. Daniel had formerly been the prime minister under Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel was too old-fashioned in his ideas. He was too moral for Belshazzar. Belshazzar had no use for Daniel. 
whatsoever. So Daniel didn't come to the party. And even if Daniel had been invited, I imagine he'd have very courteously and very tactfully declined. Because you would never find a man of God doing a thing like that. And as the evening went on, Belshazzar decided he was really going to do something to to shock his guests. And so he whispered to a servant, and the servant went out. And a few minutes later, he came back, bringing in his hands some gold and silver vessels. They had been captured years before by Nebuchadnezzar in Jerusalem. They were the sacred vessels from the temple of God. Belshazzar had them brought in, and the guests gasped, What is this young king going to do now? Was there nothing, nothing that would stop this young man? He was literally shaking his fist in God's face. He was desecrating the holy vessels of God. He was breaking the law and the commandments of God. And he ordered the vessels to be passed up and down the table. And he said, eat, drink, be merry. And the laughter and the merriment and the sin and the drunkenness went on into the night. And then as the wine had gone to his head, Belshazzar stood to his feet no doubt swaying a bit under the influence of the drink. And he poured some spirit into the glass, and he stood up and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to drink a toast. I want to drink a toast to the gods of gold and silver and iron and wood and stone. But just as he was about to put the goblet to his lips, it suddenly fell, crashing onto the table. And the banqueting hall became silent, deathly silent as Belshazzar's eyes were riveted to the plaster of the wall of the room, where a part of a hand was writing something in letters of fire. And the Bible says Belshazzar was afraid. He had an army, but he was afraid. He saw something supernatural. He, he, He was rich, but he was afraid. Today we have the highest standard of living in the history of the world in the United States and Britain. We have universities, we have educators, we have more gadgets than our fathers ever dreamed of. And by the way, remember he said this in 1954. We can take a plane and fly through space at supersonic speed. We have broken the atom, which potentially is the greatest thing for peace the world has ever known. And yet the greatest atomic scientist in the United States said recently, I am a frightened man, and all the scientists I know are frightened. I remember Mr. Churchill speaking in the House of Commons, saying all other problems fade into insignificance in comparison to the thought that overwhelms us in the explosion of a hydrogen bomb by the United States in the Pacific. If that bomb were to fall on London, according to Mr. Cassandra in the Daily Mirror, that bomb would make the British Isles uninhabitable. If that bomb were to fall upon New York, it would destroy Boston and New York and Philadelphia and Wilmington and Pittsburgh and Cleveland and Washington in one explosion. And the radioactive material would also make Chicago uninhabitable a thousand miles away. Our scientists, our political leaders and diplomats are afraid, and rightly so. There is a fear that comes from wisdom. And we should be afraid and work toward peace with all our might. Belshazzar was afraid. The king was afraid. Isn't it strange that a man can go through all of life disregarding God, giving no thought to spiritual things, but when he comes to die, he is afraid. 
Isn't it strange? A man outside of Christ. I have a lot of friends who are doctors, both in Britain and in America. My father-in-law is a doctor. And I have had this testimony time after time that they have never seen a sinner die happy if he was conscious. And they have never seen a Christian die unhappy. If I didn't believe in God, just holding the hands of people who die would make me believe in God. The difference in the way that they die. Isn't it strange that Belshazzar would be wild one moment, laughing, and then all of a sudden the Bible says he trembles all over. He's afraid. He sees something unusual, something strange. And then he looks at the writing and he can't read it. So he calls for the astrologers and the soothsayers and the wise men and all the university professors and the scientists to come in and try and read it. And they look and they study it and they try to figure it out and they can't. And they leave the banqueting hall in defeat. You know why they couldn't read it? Because it was God's handwriting. And the person who doesn't know God can't read God's handwriting. That's the the reason the Bible is no good to some of you. Because you're not a child of God. The Spirit of God does not indwell you. The Bible says that you are blinded by Satan. And when you come to the Bible, it's just so much foolishness to you. You can't make heads or tails of it. It's foolishness. When we talk about the cross, when we talk about Christ dying, when we talk about a prayer meeting or something like that, that's foolishness. It's rubbish to you. Why? Because the Bible says that spiritually you are blind. You might have good physical eyes. The Bible says we're physical, but, but we also have a soul. And the Bible says the soul of man will live forever. Maybe you say this morning you don't want to live forever. But it's not up to you to decide. You're going to live forever whether you like it or not. According to the teaching of the Bible, you're going to live in heaven or in hell. And the Bible says that the man outside of Christ is blinded. That's the the reason why when, when problems and difficulties come, you have to carry them yourself. A Christian can lift them over to Jesus. He carries them for us. That's the reason why you have to try to solve your own problems. That's the reason that through life you grope, you look back, and you can't figure out where we came from. Why are we here? Where are we going? What's it all about? It's so much mystery to you, and it's all confusion. Why? Because you can't read the handwriting of God. You can't understand the teachings of the Bible. You can't understand the life of Christ because you are blind spiritually. But receive Christ as your Savior today. Give him a chance in your life. Surrender. Commit your life to him. And he will open your spiritual eyes. And you will begin to see in the spiritual realm things you never dreamed existed. Life can be wonderful. It can be thrilling in Christ. Belshazzar was afraid. And he couldn't read the writing. And so his mother came in and said, Belshazzar, I I know how to read that writing. I know a man that knows how to read it. Who is that? Said Belshazzar. Daniel. The Hebrew prophet, he said, bring him in. Again, isn't it strange that when a man gets in trouble, many times he will call the minister. Why doesn't he call the bartender? That's where he has spent so much of his time. Call one of the dogs out here. He's been watching them all this time. But he calls for the minister. And the minister comes in. Daniel. Now here we see Daniel, tall, graceful. His eyes flashing, the set of his jaw, the squaring of his shoulders. There's something about the way Daniel walks that's different. You can tell a Christian, you know, if he's a true Christian, living in the power and the fullness of the Spirit of God. 
There's just something about him, about the way he shakes hands. There's something about the clean cut of his features. There's something about the way he looks at you that tells you he is a Christian. He is a child of God. He has life. He has the life of God within him. And it's an abundant life that flows through him. In comes Daniel. And I imagine that Belshazzar sort of cringed in front of him. And then Belshazzar said, Daniel, do you see that writing? If you can read that writing, I will put a gold chain around your neck. I will make you the third ruler in all of the empire. I'll put royal robes on you, Daniel, if you will read that writing. And Daniel looked up at the writing on the wall, and he smiled. Of course he could read it. That was his father's handwriting. He had seen it many times. And so he looked at Belshazzar the king, and he gave Belshazzar one of the most lashing sermons that you will ever find in the pages of the Bible. He said, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself. You have not humbled your heart. You have lifted up yourself against God. You have brought these vessels of God's house before you. Your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine in them. And you have praised the gods of gold and silver and wood and brass and iron and stone, which see not nor hear not nor know. And the God, in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, thou hast not glorified. Belshazzar, I will read the writing. Here are the words. Mine, mine, tikol, you farson. Four words. Mine, mine, tikol, you farson. This is the interpretation. The first word, mine, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. You know, you have a kingdom. You have a little kingdom, the kingdom of your heart. And some of you haven't humbled yourself before God. You haven't glorified God in your life. You have worshipped other gods in your life. You might say to me, now, wait a minute, Billy. I have no idols in my home. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. How about money? You have put it between you and God. Oh, but you say, Billy, that can't be. I, I'm a poor person. I, I'm a poor man, and I, that can't be. But I've seen an awful lot of poor people, and the love of money has come between them and their God. Their greed, their lust for money has come between them and God. I've seen the rich and the poor all guilty of the same sin of covetousness. What about pleasure? You have got to have your sinful pleasures. You say you can't break away from that immoral and sinful pleasure that you're engaged in. I want to tell you that before you come to Christ, you're going to have to humble yourself. And you're going to have to acknowledge that you are a sinner. You're going to have to break away from that sin. You're going to turn from your sin and commit yourself to Christ, or he will not receive you. Pleasure has become your God. What about social prestige? Social prestige has become the God for some. Other things come between you and God, and you have sinned. And Daniel said, Belshazzar, your kingdom is numbered. And you mark it down. Your kingdom is numbered. He will let you get away with sin for a while. Maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years, maybe 40. By his grace and his love and his mercy. God has been good to you. He has showered blessings upon you. And the Bible says that the very goodness of God should lead you to repentance. All of God's grace and love is outpoured on you. And the reason you're able to breathe today is because of the grace of God. It's by the mercy of God that you have been able to live today. It's by the mercy of God that you're able to live now and breathe and be in this service. It's by the mercy of God that you are here in Friendship Bible Church today.
It's because God loves you. And God has a special place for you. He loves you. But I have to tell you this. If you reject Christ, if you turn your back on Christ, if you refuse Christ, if you turn away from Christ after he died on the cross in your place, there remaineth no more way of salvation. There is no other plan of mercy. There remains no other plan of redemption in your kingdom. Your little empire that you have built up is numbered as surely as I stand here. The days are numbered. And the Bible says that God commands men everywhere to repent because he has chosen a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained. That man is Jesus Christ. God commands us to repent. He says, repent. And Jesus said, except you become converted, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Your days are numbered. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And God says, repent. While you have time, your kingdom is numbered. Daniel went on with the reading. The second word, tikal. He said, tikal. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Belshazzar, you are not weighed in the balances of what your neighbors think. You are not weighed in the balances of your own estimation. You are not weighed in the balances of how much money you have. You are not weighed in the balances of how big your army is. You are weighed in the balances of God. And you don't weigh enough. You don't weigh enough. God knows your thoughts. God knows your motives. God knows every deed that you have ever committed. He knows your uprisings and your downsittings. The eyes of God are upon us from the moment we are born until the day we die. He sees all the secret things in our hearts and in our minds. And he says that we are weighed in his balances. And Belshazzar, you don't weigh enough. You are found wanting. Just at that moment, there was a scream of a sentry at the gate. The Medo-Persian army had fooled the Babylonians. They had tricked them. They had changed the course of the Euphrates River during the party. They had climbed up under the walls, and, the, and that, that night, Babylon fell. And the Bible says Belshazzar was slain, and his soul was lost. Tonight, Belshazzar lives on, but he lives in that world that Jesus described as outer darkness, banished from the throne of God. I want to ask you, as I close today, in the sight of God, not in my sight, not in the sight of your wife, not in the sight of your husband, not in the sight of your parents, not in the sight of your children, but in the sight of God. How much do you weigh spiritually? If you don't weigh enough, you won't get to heaven. You say, well, well Billy, I know I have broken the Ten Commandments. I know that I have sinned against God. I I know that I have failed to keep the Sermon on the Mount. I know that I have come short to the glory of God, but, but what can I do? How can I weigh enough? How can I know I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure my past sins are forgiven? How, how can I be certain? Well, listen, 1,900 years ago, Jesus Christ lay down upon a cross. They put spikes through his hands and a spear in his side and a spike through his feet. They lifted him between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ 
was sinless. He was God. He was without blemish. And he died in your place. He took your punishment, your sins, your judgment. He took my punishment, my sins, my judgment on that cross. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want to confess something to you today. I do not weigh enough to get to heaven. All the good works that I have ever done are not good enough to get to heaven. We could fill Friendship Bible Church for 25 years, and I could stand here and preach my heart out every day until I had worn myself to a frazzle. But that wouldn't get me to heaven. I could get all the money in the world and pile it in a big building and offer it to God. But that wouldn't buy my way into heaven. I have no righteousness nor goodness, and in myself I do not weigh enough. I stand at Mount Sinai with Moses. I read the Ten Commandments. I look in those commandments, and they become a mirror, and I see myself as, broke, as, as having broken those commandments. The result of breaking the commandments of God is sin and death. I'm guilty. I don't weigh enough. I don't have righteousness and holiness and goodness enough to get to heaven and be accepted by God. But God in his love and his mercy has provided the goodness and the righteousness for me in Jesus Christ. And now God says, if you want to get to heaven, if you want to have all past sins forgiven, if you want to have the joy and the thrill of being a Christian, then come to the cross. Commit and surrender everything you have to Christ. Love him, obey him, follow him, and you will weigh enough. You will be accepted in the beloved. You will walk the streets of heaven, one day. And all your past sins will be forgiven. God will be your father. And Christ will be your elder brother. Today, you came in here, and you were weighed in the balances of God, and you were found wanting. Today, you can leave here, still weighed in the balances of God. But you will weigh enough. Because by faith, you have put your confidence and your choice in Christ. You can leave here today a changed person, a new person on the narrow road that leads to glory. You can leave here today with Christ in your heart. You can leave here today with the greatest peace and the greatest joy that you have ever known. You can leave here today a new creation. But you have to do something about it. Jesus doesn't come along with a strong arm and push his way into anybody's life. He will only come into your life if you voluntarily will reach up and open the door and invite him in. And when you invite him in, he comes in and he performs a revolution. You'll receive a new moral nature. You'll really become a new person. That can happen to you today if you will let him in. Well, let us pray.